Someone else said perhaps the reason we respond so universally to mother's love is because it typifies the love of our Savior. When you feel alone, when you feel like it's dark all around you and you can't feel God's presence, remember this, God will not forget you in the same way that a mother will not forget her child. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Be turning in your Bibles to Isaiah in the Old Testament, one of the major prophets, and turn to chapter 49. If you're our guest this morning, uh, like uh, Evan said, we welcome you. If you're our guest, we're studying the book of, of Isaiah. And uh, the book of Isaiah really divides into two parts. And we're in the second part of Isaiah, chapter 44 to 66. 44 to 66, they say, kind of divides into three parts as well, nine chapters each. The first, the first section is 40 to 48, which we've, we've just gotten through. And in 40 to 48, there's these reoccurring themes of encouragement that, that God gives to Israel and by extension to us. And those are themes, if you remember from, from last week, they're things like the fact that he's not giving up on Israel, that he is the one true and only God. There is no God but him. Idols are nothing. He's the creator God. He's the intervening God. And that he's going to intervene for them and punish Babylon and restore them uh, to their land. And Isaiah 49, which is where we are this morning, begins the second, the, the second section of, of uh, this last part of Isaiah. And people more scholarly, more important, more smarter. That's, you see, I just proved they're more smarter, right? <laughs> smarter than myself, right? They, they've said that this, this section is really about the servant and the servant's songs. And uh, so we're going to study the servant and the servant's songs for uh, the next few Sundays together. The servant of God in these, in these passages is Israel. Israel, like, like we said earlier, Israel really is the servant of God. It was a nation that was created by God to serve him and bear witness to God. And, uh, and yet there are at least four servant songs, some, most of them in this passage, in these nine, ver- nine chapters we're going to be looking at over the next few Sundays. Uh, there is obviously a servant that is not Israel. Israel is the servant of God, but God addresses another servant who is not Israel. And in fact, this servant is going to restore Israel. This servant is distinguished from from the nation. Now, Christians have looked at these servant songs, and, and they have said that we see Jesus as the servant of Isaiah. And so the New Testament writers often quote from these, these chapters that we're studying and they refer them to be about Jesus. They believe Jesus was the, the servant of these verses. They believe he was uh, the Messiah. In fact, there's some debate whether the Jews themselves would look at these servant songs prior to the coming of Jesus they would look at these servant songs that we're, that we're studying and, and they would say, we think they're about 
the Messiah, not just about Israel, right? They're about Israel, but they're also specifically, or more, more especially, they're about uh, the Messiah, this coming king who's going to come. And there's some evidence that some of the Jewish scholars actually taught that and believed that. And if they did, when the New Testament writers come and they, they lift these passages from Isaiah and they apply them to Jesus, all they're doing is what the Jewish teachers were doing. And they're saying, hey, we know who the Messiah is. The Messiah, the servant, is actually Jesus. Now, most modern Jewish scholars today and teachers today, they will deny that these servant descriptors are the Messiah. They say they're not about the Messiah, they're all about Israel. And the reason they say that is because these servant songs so powerfully resemble Jesus that it's hard not to draw the corollary truth, right? That this is about Jesus. So most modern Jewish scholars today, they they would say none of the servant songs are about Messiah because if they are, then it's obvious they're about Jesus. Okay. Now the first servant song that we looked at already is found in that first section. So it's kind of contradicting the title for these sections, for these chapters. But it's found in, in chapter 42. We devoted a whole Sunday to that first servant song. And so if you missed it, you can go back and listen uh, to that. Chapter 49, first chapter of the second section, is really the second servant song. And here's what God says about the servant. I'm at verse 5, chapter 49, verse 5. Now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it's not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, uh, his Holy One says to the one who is despised, to one abhorred by people, to a servant of rulers, kings will see, princes will stand up, and they will all bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. So the servant in this passage here, in those verses I just read to you, says that he was chosen to be the servant from his mother's womb. Now, us believers in Jesus, we know that Jesus was conceived by God the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. And so he was not conceived the way we all have been conceived, but he was conceived differently. But this servant has been the servant from his mother's womb. The servant would be honored by God and God would be his strength. And again, things the first servant song said about Jesus. Chapter 42 said all of this. And we pointed out, and I point out again this morning, Jesus was honored by God and beloved by God. You remember, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And you'll remember the spirit of God coming upon Jesus and that Jesus was anointed by the spirit of God and he did what he did through the power of the spirit. But most importantly, in the verses I just read you, the servant will bring Israel back to himself. But even more, the servant will be a light to the nations, and he will be the salvation to the ends of the earth. We know that Jesus was God's anointed king, his Messiah, and he, by his life and by his death, brought Israel and the Gentile nations together into one kingdom. 
And he is our salvation. He's the salvation of all the world. The psalm, or the Isaiah continues, the servant would be abhorred, despised, a servant of rulers. And indeed, Jesus was all of that. This God-man king was a servant of all. In fact, he said, I've come into the world to serve. Paul would say of him that he was made a low servant, even to the point of serving unto death. He, he was subservient to Pilate and to Herod by his own choice. And yet God says that kings and rulers would bow down to this servant. And indeed, the New Testament writers, have, though we haven't seen this yet, the New Testament writers say that every knee shall bow and every tongue uh, shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So uh, we, we see the New Testament writers telling us that the servant that God is promising is indeed the Lord Jesus. Now, the part that comes next in, in Isaiah 49 could refer to the nation, could refer to Israel, the nation. But I believe contextually, I'm going to continue to apply it to the Lord Jesus. And I think you'll see, or, or, or to this servant Messiah King, whom I believe you'll see to be Jesus. So let's, let's continue and apply it. I'm going to apply it to Jesus. Verse 8. I will keep you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land, to make them possess the desolate inheritances, saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They will feed along the pathways. Their pastures will be on all the barren lands. They will not hunger or thirst. The scorching heat or sun will not strike them, for their compassionate one will guide them and lead them to springs. As God continues, if indeed he's talking about this servant Messiah and, of course, the Lord Jesus, I, here's what he says. I'm going to make you a covenant for the people. And we talked about this in Psalm 40, excuse me, in, in chapter 42. Jesus said, I am making a covenant with God and you in my blood, in my, with my life. I am going to be this new covenant. His life made the covenant with God for us for eternal life. The servant would restore, free, and provide for his people. And this, of course, is what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do in the future. And so what verse 13 says is this is how we should all respond to the fact that this Messiah servant king is coming. Shout for joy, you heavens. Earth rejoice. Mountains break into joyful shouts. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. You know, God has had compassion on us, but God is going to have even more compassion on us when Jesus comes again. Uh, should I say more compassion? I'm not sure that's true. Uh, what I mean by that is, is God has something intended for us that though we have eyes to see and know what it is, his coming kingdom, we really don't know all that God has prepared for those of us who love him. We don't understand all that God's kingdom will entail in the days to come. And uh, as 49 continues, uh, God says to Israel that he's, gonna, he's promising he's going to restore to them. He says, uh, they will have so many children in the land uh, that the land will be viewed as too small, verses 19 through 21. I think that could refer to, the land, to them coming back from Babylon. But I think it also could be talking about in the coming day when God's kingdom is realized and Jesus, and Jesus um, 
and Jesus comes back and establishes kingdom here on earth, boy, you couldn't put us all in the promised land. I mean, the whole world will be his kingdom, right? But we'd be too many for that one spot. Other nations will help you return, he says in verse 22 through verse 23. And then in verse 24, God says this to Israel. And I think to us, can the prey be taken from a mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be deceived? And the rhetorical answer is no, of course not. But God goes on, verse 25. For this is what the Lord says, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken and the prey of the tyrant will be delivered. I will contend with the one who contends with you. I will save your children. I will save you, God is saying to Israel. He asked Israel more questions in chapter 50, verse 1. Where is your mother's divorce certificate that I used to send her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell, did I sell you? Here's what God is asking Israel. Remember, they're reading this. Again, for those of you that this is your first time with us, you know, Isaiah is writing this 100 years before Israel will fall and 170 years before God is going to release them from Babylon. So he's writing this 170 years ahead of time. But 170 years from now, God is asking Israel the question, hey, when did I divorce you? When, when, when did I sell you, just capriciously sell you? And, and the answer is, I never did that. He says, I never did that. I never divorced you. I never just sold you capriciously. He says, and this is what he says next. Look, look at the text. Look, you were sold for your iniquities and your mother was sent away because of your transgressions. God was telling Israel, I didn't arbitrarily rid myself of you. You're here because you're in this predicament because of your own sin, not because of something that I did capriciously. And that brings us to the third Messianic servant song in chapter 50, verse 4. So we're now into one of those servant songs. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are instructed to know how to sustain the weary with a word. He wakens me each morning. He wakens my ear to listen like those being instructed. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I did not turn back. I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. And indeed, if this is speaking 700 years before the Lord Jesus, and if it indeed is talking about a servant Messiah who's coming, then what it tells us is this, that Jesus was listening to the Father. He was not rebellious, right? He was listening to the Father that God would tell him how to sustain the people and his words and his words to share with the people that might encourage them and brighten them. I've been, I've been watching The Chosen, the third season from about the middle on since Thursday, season four began. And if you've never watched The Chosen, you know, I, I'm probably going out on a limb. Some of you are probably mad at me for, for recommending it. But I'm telling you, to listen to them use the words of Jesus as they do, the, his words are so encouraging. His words are so encouraging. And that's what the servant would do. His words would be encouraging. He says, I was not rebellious. I did not turn back from what God had for me. I gave my back to those who would beat me and my cheeks uh, to be, my beard to be plucked out and to be spit on and scorned. And we know that's exactly what Jesus did, right? Again, why, why would the Jews not see the servant to be someone like the Messiah who they're looking for? Well, the reason they can't do that is because Jesus fits this description so well. Jesus gave his back 
to be scourged for us. They spat on him. And though it never says in the New Testament that they plucked out his beard, I I have a feeling that they did that because of what it says here in Isaiah, in this chapter and in chapter 53. Yet the servant speaks of his trust and his faith in Yahweh. Verse 7, the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not, I have not been humiliated. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. The one who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us confront each other. Who has a case against me? Let him come near. The servant says, God He will not be humiliated. God will not let him be humiliated or put to shame. God will vindicate him. And beloved, that is exactly what God did. God vindicated Jesus. They killed him. They mutilated his body. They buried him in a tomb and they said, good riddance, we're done. It's over. But it wasn't over. God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. And I'm here today, and I believe you're here today, because Jesus is alive. God vindicated him. And that's what the servant said 700 years before Jesus ever walked onto our planet. And so Isaiah writes of the servant, he set his face like a flint. He set his face like a rock. A flint's a rock. Like a rock towards what? Well, Luke tells us, chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, maybe that's not clear. Maybe you don't know what that means. Here's what that means. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem because the time of his death was approaching. The time of his being taken back to heaven was approaching. Rome and the Jews were going to kill him. And Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem for one purpose, to die for us. Jesus said just a day or so before this, he says, a prophet cannot die outside of Jerusalem. Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem to die for the nations to die for the Jews, to die for the Gentiles, to die for me and to die for you. He set his face like a flint. And he did, what did he do? He went to Jerusalem and he gave his life making a covenant with his blood for each one of us. Is it no wonder that the Jews will not say, the Jewish teachers today will not say these servant songs are about the Messiah? I mean, is there no wonder It's just so clearly marking Jesus. The servant who is to be condemned, killed, and humiliated then says, who has a case against me? Let him come near me. In truth, the Lord God God will help me. Who will condemn me? Does that line sound familiar to you? I mean, it's, it's not exactly the same line, but the servant basically is saying this, if God is for me, who can condemn me? If God is for me, you know, I mean, who is condemning me? They may kill the servant of God, but God has not condemned me. Here's what the Apostle Paul would write concerning the servant, right? Romans 8, 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? 
Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, the anointed King Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised, vindicated. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Paul is saying that the servant was Jesus and God did not condemn Jesus, but raised him from the dead. And in the same way that he restored Jesus' life, He's going to restore your life and my life. God will not condemn us. And so Paul began this conversation in Romans with this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those of us that are in the Lord. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and of death. Now, this is the good news. And when we exercise faith in Jesus, God puts us in Jesus. Now, now listen, your faith, listen to me, your faith doesn't put you in Jesus. God puts you in Jesus. Your faith isn't meritorious. Your faith isn't a work that deserves for you to be placed into Jesus. No, God is gracious and God is the one who puts us in Jesus, but he's already told us who he's going to put in Jesus. He's going to put in Jesus everyone who puts their faith in him. To be in Jesus is to be rescued from the condemnation and death that God has promised is coming. And in the same way God rescues Jesus from death, he's going to rescue us from death too. In the same way he raised Jesus from the dead, he's going to raise us from the dead. In this last part of the chapter, God asked the question, who among you fears the Lord and listens to his servant? Who among you walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let him lean on his God. This appeal is a challenge. This appeal is a challenge to those who trust in God and who trust in his servant. And this is what he says. Even when it seems dark all around you and you cannot see, he says, put your trust in God. Put your trust in God, even when you cannot see. And I wonder, I I mean, I wondered this week, I wonder if the disciples would have read this in in those early days, those early followers of Jesus, if they would have read this and and they would have seen their, their king, Jesus. They would have seen him pictured in these verses and they would have read, even when you walk in darkness and there is no light, put your trust in God. Put your trust in the servant. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't know about most of us who follow Jesus, but I do know for many of us, and maybe it is most of us, maybe it's all of us, there are times when it feels like we're walking in darkness. It feels like I cannot see. It feels like I cannot sense God's presence in my life. I remember there was a season in in our lives where Anne, Anne described her life at the time as, I just feel like I'm walking in darkness. And I tell you what, I've had that myself personally. Maybe not at the same time she had it, but I have felt like there are times when I can't feel the presence of God. And I feel like I don't know what to do or where to go. And here's what God is saying. Trust me even when you can't feel me. Trust me when you can't exactly see what I'm doing. And here's what I mean by trust. When he says trust me, here's what I think God wants us to trust. Trust that I love you. 
Trust that I'm not leaving you, even though you don't feel me. Trust that I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm watching you. I'm, I'm with you. Listen to my servant. Do what he's told you to do. Even when you can't see it or feel it, just follow my servant. Don't quit following. At the end of this chapter, God says this. If you devise your own plan, if you light your own torches when you're in darkness and you light your own torches, your end will be suffering and grief. If you light your own torches to follow your own path because you can't see, he said, you're going to end up in suffering and grief. Instead, listen to my servant. Listen, trust in me even when it, when it feels scary or it feels so dark and so bleak. And that brings us to the end of chapter 50, and we're going to stop there, but we're going to return back to chapter 49 to a, to a specific message for us when we're in times like I'm describing, when you're in a time where you feel like it's darkness all around. And I happen to know some of you feel that way. And the reason I know that is because you told me. And, I, and the reason I know it also is because I got eyes and I can see. And I know it's a, it's a dark time. It, it's, it's maybe a scary time. Now I'm indebted to H.B. Charles for helping me see what I'm going to share with you right now. But in chapter 49, verse 13, go back to that if you have your Bibles open. And 49, 13 says, Shout for joy, you heavens. Earth rejoice. Mountains break into joyful sounds. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. So here we have the promise of this Messiah servant. We have the promise of God's rescue of Israel. And, and, and God says, man, our response to that should be shout for joy, everyone. All the nations shout for joy because of what God is going to do. Every, every creature under heaven should, should praise the creator with joy because of what he's going to do. But the people of God, personified by the city of Jerusalem. That's what Zion, Zion represents the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem represents the people of God. The people of God have said, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. God promised his servant would deliver them. But the people of God do not believe the promise of God. Unable to see, listen, unable to see past their circumstances because their circumstances are so painful. And their circumstances are so dark that they, uh, they, they're unable to see. And so they, uh, they say, God has forsaken me. God has forgotten me. Now, their situation made them feel like God had forsaken them. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? They're in the situation they're in because they have forsaken God. And yet they feel like God has forsaken them. It's actually the other way around, right? They couldn't see him. They couldn't feel his presence. So they didn't believe him. They said, listen, do not always trust your feelings. Your feelings are not always correct. They might, they're real. Your feelings are real. Every time you feel something, it's a real feeling. But just because it's real doesn't make it right. Our emotional responses in life the, the, to circumstances, they're authentic to us. They're how we feel. But that doesn't mean that they're accurate. So if you're a child of God and you feel like your heavenly father has forsaken you because it seems so dark all around you and life is difficult and, and, and you can't feel God's pres uh, presence and, and instead you're feeling despair, depression, or discouragement, 
You know, you need to speak to those feelings. You need to rebuke those feelings. So what I want to share with you for the next few minutes, and we're, we're almost finished, so listen really intently to this last part. Um, what comes next is God's proclamation of his love for you. All right? So Israel said, God, we can't feel you. I mean, it's just really tough where we are. You've forsaken us. You've forgotten us. Here's God's threefold proclamation of his love to them. And I want you to see it in the verses that follow. And let's begin by noting, first of all, the picture of God's love. Verse 14. Zion says, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. The people of God are saying, you might be saying, the Lord has forsaken me. He's forgotten me. Here's what God says. It's a picture of his love. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Or lack compassion for the child of her womb? That's a rhetorical question that assumes a negative answer, right? Uh, even the despondent Israelites would have understood this. A mother doesn't forget, a nursing mother doesn't forget her child. And, and yet the Lord is stating this obvious truth with pervasive language. The, the, the picture that he's giving us is of a woman who's just given birth to a child. Can that woman forget that child, he asked. This child's not in the terrible twos where you want to forget him or the tempestuous uh, teenager, right, that you're, you're praying to forget him. No, it's not that. It's the nursing child, right, who's drawing his life from uh, his mother's or her mother's milk. The hungry cries of that baby won't let her forget that child. Her own body won't let her forget that child. Now, I've watched Anne uh, nurse six babies. I've listened to my wife and my daughters all talking about nursing, nursing their children and engorged breast and pain and, and, and blocked ducts and uh, need to pump and all. Your body won't let you forget that child. Verse 15, can a woman lack compassion for the child of her womb? Compassion corresponds to forget. If her child is in pain or trouble or danger, she's not going to forget that child. A mother's love can't forget that child. When the disciples fled away from Jesus, who's at the foot of the cross watching Jesus die? Yeah, John was there, but who was there front and center? Mary was. There's a mystical love between a mom and a child. You know, uh, what's his name, H.B. Charles, he says dads implant the seed, but the child grows within the womb of the mother. Everything a pregnant woman does affects two people. And when that child is born, it's absolutely still dependent on its mother's milk. Remember the story in the Old Testament about, uh, about the two women and their children, uh, and one of them rolls over on her child and, and kills her child, and, and then she switches babies with another mother. And in the morning daylight, the mom with the dead child says, this isn't my child. And they go to Solomon. And Solomon says, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut the child in half. And you take half. And you take half. And the woman whose child it wasn't says, yeah, that's a good idea. Cut him in half. And the mother whose child it was said, no, no, let her, let her have him. I mean, she's willing to let the other woman raise her child and have her child. Why? Because a mother's love, I mean, it's just, it's just indescribable, a mother's love. A child's bloodline may come through dads, but a child's lifeline comes through the mom. And this, beloved, is the picture of God's love that he paints for his picture. He says, in the same way that a mother can't forget her child, I can't 
forget you. I won't forget you. God says in Isaiah 66, 13, a few chapters ahead of where we are now, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. Someone said, and I concur with this, no love comes closer to approximating the pure love of Jesus than the selfless love of a devoted mother that she has for her child. Someone else said, perhaps the reason we respond so universally to mother's love is because it typifies the love of our Savior. When you feel alone, when you feel like it's dark all around you and you can't feel God's presence, remember this, God will not forget you in the same way that a mother will not forget her child. That's the picture of love. Now notice the promise of God's love, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, I will not forget you. Here's the promise, you know, even if a woman somehow forgets her son, I won't forget you. I won't abandon you. There's another Old Testament story. There's another Old Testament story where um, the city of Jerusalem is under siege. I mean, this is a horrible story. And two women agree to kill their children and eat them because there's no food. And they're just, the famine is terrible. And so they do that to one child. And the next day, the mother with the other child, she runs and hides. She won't give up her child. You know, my point of the story is, what kind of mother would give up her child to be eaten by her and some other woman? What kind of mother would do that? What, what, I mean, my, here's my point. The mo- mothers generally don't give up their children, right? But every once in a while, women can be, mothers can have something going on that's so horrible that they can do horrible things. There are women who find themselves in all kinds of brokenness that leads them to forget their sons and daughters. The courts are filled with cases of moms on drugs that have caused them to forget their children. God acknowledges that possibility. But here's what he says. But my love, I will never, Jesus' love, the Spirit's love, I will never, ever forget you. My love surpasses the love of a mom and a dad. Psalm 27.10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Psalm 49.15 is a weighty promise. I will not forget you. And this is a promise first to Israel, and then it's a promise to the church. But listen, it's a promise to you if you trust the Lord. I will never forget you. I will not abandon you. I am with you. It reminds me of Romans 8.38. I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in the Messiah Jesus, our Lord. That leads me to the, the third thing, the proof of God's love. Verse 16. Look. I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I've engraved you in my hands, God says. Um, And this is an accomplished fact. It's not a promise. I have engraved you on my hands. And he says it's more than a tattoo. He says, I'm scarring myself. I'm engraving myself uh, on my hands, you on my hands. Now, when God first said that to Israel, It's a metaphor. 
It's a metaphor. I, I don't think God had my name tattooed or engraved in, in his hands. Metaphorically, he's engraved my name on his hands. But it's not a metaphor anymore. God has literally engraved you in his hands, in his palms. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the nail holes that hung Jesus on the cross. After his resurrection, you remember this? Thomas doubts, and when Jesus shows up, the first thing he says to Thomas is, come stick your fingers in the holes in my hands. So I wonder. I mean, I think this is the case. I think Jesus still has the wounds in his hands. The reason I'd say that is because he had them after the resurrection. Why would he not still have them today? He has engraved us on his hands the hands of the God-man, the hands of God who became human. We are engraved on his hands, the covenant that he made with us with his life. Verse 16, look, I inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. In the ancient world, the walls, they, they represented the, the defense strategy around your house or around your city, right? And it represented your strength and your stability and your well-being and security. And God is saying, I've always got my eyes on your walls. I've always got my eyes on your life. I'm always watching you. I'm always seeing you. Despite what people might think, I've got my eyes on your walls. I see you. I won't forget you. Jesus told us, he said, not one bird falls from the sky without God knowing it. You remember what he said next? And aren't you so much more valuable than the birds? Aren't you so much more valuable than them? In 1905, Sevilla Martin penned some words to a hymn. And, uh, and I asked my, my, I think I know how part of it goes, but I don't really know how it goes. But I asked Micah if he'd come sing this, uh, this verse for us here. And uh, I think once he starts singing and once he gets the refrain, you will, you will know um, what the song is. Let not your heart be troubled, his tender word I hear, and resting on his goodness, I lose my doubts and fears. Though by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Sing with the refrain if you can. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. For his eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. So listen to me. If you are feeling in the dark, 
If you're feeling like you're all alone and maybe you're discouraged, let the Spirit of God, let him fall fresh on you this morning. Let him fall fresh on you this morning and remind you of his great love for you. He's like the mother. He hasn't forgotten you. He's more than the mother. He will never abandon you. And his eyes are on your walls. And you are engraved on his hands. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.